Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. As always, thank you so much to my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also, Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market today. Also, go check out whatmatrix.com for a full feature breakdown of all layering products. I just posted a blog as kind of a retrospective of application layering in 2018. You could check that out. And I also updated the what matrix too. Enough about that. Let's get into some news. Who wished for a zero day for Christmas this year? Well, you got your wish. Microsoft released an urgent Internet Explorer patch to address a remote execution vulnerability across pretty much all versions of Windows. In advisory CVE 2018-8653, it suggested an attacker who successfully exploits a vulnerability can gain the same user rights as the current user. So if that current user is logged in as an administrator, an attacker could successfully exploit the vulnerability and take control of an affected system. An attacker could then, for example, install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. In a web-based attack scenario, an attacker could host a specifically crafted website that is designed to exploit the vulnerability through IE and then convince a user to view the website, for example, by maybe sending an email, a phishing email. Unfortunately, if you patched your systems earlier than usual with December patches to try and get everything deployed before the holiday, sorry, you now need to go patch again. It appears Google actually gave the heads up to Microsoft on this one. It's cool to see they're helping each other out in that regard, making it just a more secure world, I guess. But man, what a bummer, what bad timing. Keeping with a little bit of a security theme, this week Microsoft published info on its Windows Sandbox. Windows Sandbox is an isolated temporary desktop environment where you can run untrusted software without the fear of lasting impact on your PC. Any software installed in the sandbox stays only in that sandbox and cannot affect your host system. Once Windows Sandbox is closed, all the software with all of its files and state are permanently deleted. This isn't an additional component, it is a feature that's coming to Windows 10 Pro and Enterprise. It's available right now in the latest preview version of Windows 10. The Sandbox machine, I saw some claims online, I don't think it was directly from Microsoft, but other tech outlets, claiming that it was a lightweight VM, which, you know, a requirement of one gig free disk space and only two CPU cores as a minimum does make it sound lightweight. But if you look at Microsoft's recommendations, they recommend eight gigs of memory and four cores with hyper-threading, which makes sense if you're running a VM on an actual desktop and the minimum requirement for your desktop as is is four gigs of memory. It makes sense that they would ask you to have at least eight gigs for the best performance. I joked around a little on Twitter, mainly to get a rise out of my buddy Steve Thomas, that it reminded me of MedV. I was joking. It does have a little bit of that Windows on Windows VM that the later version of MedV had, but MedV was more of a security vulnerability rather than a solution or a help. As Patrick Coble pointed out, 
It reads like it's closer to what Sandboxy offers. In fact, Microsoft's own blog starts with, how many times have you downloaded an executable file but were afraid to run it? Have you ever been in a situation which required a clean installation of Windows but you didn't want to set up a virtual machine? Makes it sound like Sandboxy. This feature uses hardware-based virtualization for kernel isolation, which relies on Hyper-V to run a separate kernel, which isolates Sandbox from the host. I mean, my comprehension is it's similar to maybe having something like VMware Workstation or back in the day with MedV was virtual PC, but having, in this case, Hyper-V client version on the desktop running this lightweight VM that has some logic in it to keep it operating pretty efficiently so it doesn't impact the desktop too much. If you have download a new application and you're worried about it, you can just use this feature seamlessly from, or relatively seamlessly, from your desktop and run it through the ringer and see if there's any problem. And if there is a problem, you've just saved yourself because it will stay within this isolated VM that has its own isolated network and file system and it will never touch or hurt your actual system that you care about. When I initially saw the tweets about it, I thought maybe this could be a Bromium competitor, but it's not quite that. Bromium is a real-time overall security solution that doesn't really require an initiation of sorts. It runs at a completely different level, and Bromium postures itself as much more of just an overarching overall enterprise security product. I haven't had a chance to try out the Windows Sandbox yet, but I'm looking forward to it. This week, VMware released version 7.7 .7 of VMware Horizon. There are several new additions, including in Horizon Administrator, you have the ability to identify the Horizon 7 pod you are working with. It will display in the Administrator header in the Web Browser tab. You can monitor the system health of Unified Access Gateways version 3.4 or later. And there's some other features to Horizon Administrator too. Uh, for Horizon Console, the HTML5-based web interface, you can now manage View Composer linked clone desktop pools, you can manage manual desktop pools, and you can manage persistent disks for linked clone desktop pools all within the Horizon Console. The very cool Horizon Help Desk tool now gives you the ability to end an application process running on an RDS host for a specific user. Published desktops and applications can now have farms containing up to 500 RDS host servers. Users can also configure multi-session mode to use multiple instances of the same published application on different client devices. You can set the RDS host in the drain mode state or in drain mode until a restart state, kind of similar to you know version 6.5 of Citrix Zen app, it sounds like. You can also enable hybrid login for after you create an unauthenticated access user. Enabling hybrid login provides unauthenticated access users domain access to network resources such as, such as file shares or network printers without the need to enter credentials. This release also has support for vSphere version 6.7 update 1 and vSAN 6.7 update 1. There's also several other updates to Horizon Agent for Linux, Horizon Agent, the cloud pod architecture within Horizon, and more. I don't want to keep just going through reading these, but there are a lot of additions and enhancements within this version, so check that out. Oh, also, 
A big one, which I probably should mention, is Windows Server 2019 is now supported for RDS hosts and virtual desktops. Also, physical PCs and workstations with Windows 10 18.03 Enterprise or higher can be brokered through Horizon 7 via Blast Stream Protocol. I would add, I've noticed an issue on older versions of Horizon View. If you go to the latest VMware Horizon client that released alongside version 7.7, which is Horizon Client 4.10, you may notice some problems launching desktops against older Horizon View environments. You may want to stay on version 4.9 or earlier. In addition to this, VMware App Volumes 2.15 is now available. This release's highlights include enhancements to user writable volume features, and App Volumes is also now supported for Horizon 7 on VMware Cloud on AWS. Specifically for profile-only writable volumes, with App Volumes 2.15, a new profile-only template has been added so that administrators can restrict the use of writable volumes to storing only profile data, which is cool. You can now use two environment variables when configuring paths to folders and files that should be excluded from a writable volume. OneDrive for business and BoxDrive are now supported when using App Volumes, and persistence can be achieved using a writable volume. To me, it looks like there's probably more important features in this release than there was for 2.14, although 2.14 does seem a relatively stable version from my experience just testing. On a previous episode, I talked about the announcement that Microsoft will move toward a Chromium code base for its browser rather than Edge HTML. Slashdot.org reported this week that Joshua Bakita a former software engineering intern on the Edge team at Microsoft stated Google kept making changes to its sites that broke other browsers and that we couldn't keep up, meaning Microsoft's Edge team. He goes on, further example was they recently added a hidden empty div, which is HTML speak, I guess, over YouTube videos that causes our hardware acceleration fast path to bail. This was fixed in Windows 10 October update, by the way. And prior to that, their fairly state-of-the-art video acceleration put Edge well ahead of Chrome on video playback time on battery. He says almost the instant they broke things on YouTube, they then started advertising Chrome's dominance over Edge on video, on video watching battery life. He stressed that he was theorizing and wasn't sure if YouTube changed, if the YouTube changes were intentional to make Edge slower. I just thought it was pretty interesting to see this from somebody from Microsoft, or at least I know it's an intern, not someone who's full-time and they're not really a spokesperson, but I thought it was interesting all the same. I guess all is fair in love and tech war. In some other news, Intel have confirmed that they are on track to release their first graphics cards in 2020. There's absolutely no other information on this right now other than confirmation from Intel that this should release in 2020. It'll be interesting to see how this could shake things up on the GPU market. Citrix Receiver 4.9 LTSR CU5 has been released. There are many, many fixes. I noticed there was a trend of fixes related to published applications displaying in the foreground versus background when local apps are launched on the same desktop. If you're on an LTSR version or receiver and have noticed some quirks with that, it's time you start testing. I talk often about BISF on the podcast. Well, this week, a package for version 6.1.001 was published on Chocolatey by the awesome Ryan Butler. 
If you're not familiar with Chocolaty, you need to be. It automatically streamlines your packaging and installs. Even if you want to just use it at home, it's really, really handy. Citrix Optimizer version 2 has now been released. I covered this a little bit on last week's episode when talking about an ICT-R article that did a great impact analysis on the performance improvements when using this tool. If you work in virtualization with Windows, you should check this out. It's a handy little tool to run as you seal your image and it provides proven performance improvements for your end users. Speaking of ICTR, my buddy Ryan posted another great article. These guys are churning out these performance studies quicker than I can keep up with them. This week's covered MSIX performance impact. In the study, Ryan compares MSIX containerized apps with AppV sequenced apps and locally installed apps showing first launch performance, second launch performance, and more. For me, the results confirm what I already suspected just judging with my own eyes. As Ryan suggests, when introducing isolation like you do with AppV and MSIX, there tends to be a hit on launch time. How much and how does MSIX compare with AppV on this? You'll need to check out ICT-R.com to find out. Irish company ThinScale, creators of the popular ThinIO and ThinKiosk, have released a new product called IntelliPerform. The product intelligently manages and optimizes desktop infrastructure resources, enabling resources to to be delivered when they are needed, managing resource-hungry apps. On their site, they show a customer use case that includes limiting the number of CPU threads per server that Excel can use. This sounds like it should be awesome for RDSH and virtual desktops, which have shared or limited resources. As I said at the top of the podcast, to accompany the recent updates that I talked about last week on the application Layering What Matrix, I posted a short blurb going through some of the highlights for each layering product this year, their improvements, and more. I'll link it with this episode, which is episode 51 on 5bytespodcast.com under resource links, as well as in the YouTube description. And now for this episode's hot job. This week's hot job is really just being used as an example to tee something else up, if I'm honest. But I got contacted by a recruiter this week about an opportunity in Glendale, Arizona as an infrastructure engineer level two. It's a 12 plus month contract, as it says. What the job spec says versus what recruiters tell me are very different. For example, multiple recruiters contact me about the same position. Most do not mention a rate of pay, but one actually put it in their initial LinkedIn message stating it was $67.85 per hour. I mean, typically right away, if I see something like an odd number like that, I know I can usually ask for more. This particular position kind of highlighted some of my frustrations about recruitment. I'm not one of those people who bitch about recruiters cold calling me. I see it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to assess my own worth and gauge the market rate in the city that I live in. Now, I had no interest in this position, but my current title is somewhat similar, which leads me to a rare hot job segment of a type, kind of. I recommend that everyone check out Onisic, which is O-N-I-S-I-C-K dot com. Some really good practical tips and career guidance. I'm pretty different to Joe, who's the host, when it comes to approach and mindset about work in general. But I agree with so many of the tips, such as how to effectively use recruiter cold calls, emails, and LinkedIn messages to your own benefit. Joe covers this and much more in his video series. 
definitely check it out and like with everything else i'll link it with this episode which is episode 51 and you'll find that on fivebytespodcast.com and now for this episode scripts tricks and tips the amazing genius Helga Klein shared a script for automating browser testing a couple weeks ago. It's pretty cool. You can take it as it is and then just input your own list of URLs if you'd like and run it on a machine that's got Chrome, Firefox, and Internet Explorer installed. If you'd like, you could even just change some of the content in the script to match your own requirements. So like by default, it assumes you want to test Chrome, Firefox, and Internet Explorer, but maybe you only want one of those browsers. I know web developers use tools like Selenium with their own personal programming languages of choice. For IT pros who may want to try something similar and are not familiar with codes, like with languages like C++, Python, or what have you, Helga's script offers a more IT pro friendly version that uses PowerShell. And as always, that's it for another episode. Thanks so much for listening.